Coming up on today's show, the Alberta party has a new leader, Barry Morishita. We've talked a lot about the spending that's going to be going on by all of the federal parties as we deal with the pandemic and the recovery. Nobody talking about fiscal responsibility and an interesting discussion on the future of Canada and the Taliban. Right now, though, we're going to turn our attention to the Alberta Party. And I think it's a really interesting discussion, one I'm looking forward to having, because I firmly believe that Alberta has become a very divided province, and there's a lot of Albertans who don't like it, don't want it, find it exhausting, as a matter of fact, and don't identify with, um, you know, the right or the left, and sort of say, you know what, I'm, I'm a little more up the middle on this. And the Alberta Party has traditionally positioned themselves as that centrist option. It has failed to resonate. To be frank, they haven't gained the traction that uh, a lot of people anticipated they might. Well, they have a new leader. Will things change under Barry Morishita? Former mayor of Brooks, uh, president of the Alberta Urban Municipalities Association, a guy who's been around for a while, has a bit of name recognition and some experience working in government. So is this the answer? Let's find out. We're going to chat now with Barry Morishita, who's the new leader of the Alberta Party. Uh, Mr. Morishita, thanks so much for joining us and congratulations on uh, being the new leader. Well, thank you very much, Shay. Happy to be here. Um, so, okay, am I right in, in saying that the Alberta Party has always been defining themselves as the centrist option? Is that the continued message of this party? Hey, if, if, if the left or the right doesn't necessarily fit with you, there is a third choice. Is that still the definition of the Alberta Party? Uh, well, you know, the, the, it's the term centrist that I, I take a little bit of exception to, only because it really doesn't speak to anything. Mm-hmm. And that's really not what, what the Alberta Party is. What drew me to the Alberta Party was the fact that it isn't ideological, though. There there aren't ideologues uh, anchoring policies that don't make sense. And for the Alberta Party, uh, and why it fits so well with me, is that's how we I've been making decisions uh, and governing in my uh, municipal career. You, you have to take the best information, and you work with uh, the groups that are important and, and have something to offer, and then you put together a plan that allows you to make progress. And no one thinks about left or right. Uh, they just think about what's best to go forward, and that's what the Alberta Party offers. And I, I think you're right. I think that's what Albertans are looking for. They're looking for practical affordable, sustainable government um, that resonates in their communities and gets them to on a path forward. And uh, I think that's what's missing right now. It's been missing for a while. Okay, so Barry, if we agree that a lot of Albertans don't feel like they really have a home in terms of these two parties, which are understandably ideological, there's no no denying that fact, anybody looking at it with a reasonable eye, um, and saying they don't really fit into that ideological way of thinking, why has this approach of the Alberta Party, where we abandon the ideology and just focus on governance, why hasn't that resonated to this point? Well, you know, I think there's, I, you know, it, it's uh, there's a lot of factors, obviously, in elections that change. But I think one of the key things, and this is something that I'm, I'm guaranteeing right now, is that uh, over the next 20 months and leading into the 2023 election, the Alberta Party will show uh, Albertans that there is something to vote for. We're going to have firm, bold, uh, direct policies that deal with the issues we have. And, um, you know, whether it's fiscal sustainability, uh, plans to get get our debt and deficit under control, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with um, health care issues, particularly in rural Alberta? How do we deal with the, the education issues that we have? You know, we're going to have specific solutions, and I think 
uh, they're going to be bold and they're going to be understandable. And I think that's going to set us uh, on a different pathway over the next uh, 20 months towards that election. Yeah, like you say, we're still, we've still got two years, so the policy is still going to be fine-tuned and developed over that course of time. But right now, uh, being a couple of years away from an election, you've got a lot of ground to make up, obviously. You know that. I'm not telling anything you don't know. How do you get started? What can we expect to see from the Alberta Party starting today, September 2nd? You know, a lot of hard work. I mean, I've got uh, hundreds of people reaching out to me, and, and we're going to be committed to meeting with uh, people where they live in their communities and finding out what they need, to, what, they need what they're looking for, uh, listening a lot, um, proposing uh, opportunities for people to get involved. Uh, there's no doubt we need resources to, to be uh, competitive in election in 2023, so we've, we've got to raise money, um, we've got to get people behind us, and, and I think that's the work that starts, and, and that's just plain hard work. That's getting out there and doing it, and no one's going to work harder than me to get that done. Um, obviously, it's very early to talk about goals, so I don't want you to put you, put you on a spot here, but I think, you know, when you take a look at the next election, um, what are the goals? Uh, you know, uh, what what sort of... This is what we have to do to start this party moving in a direction where one day we form government. What do you set your sights on for the next time we go to the polls? Well, we absolutely need a presence in the legislature. So, um, you know, I don't think we're going to have trouble attracting uh, really great candidates. And then we're going to have to be smart, strategic, and, and like I said, gather up the resources necessary. We need to have a presence in the legislature in 2023 and hopefully be in a position to influence policy that will affect Albertans. Uh, and of course, getting the leader elected is the big one, right? You need that. Yeah, yeah, that would be good. That's, that's pretty important. <laughs> uh, Barry, I appreciate your time, and I look forward to seeing uh, what you do with the Alberta Party. As I say, I think there is a, an appetite for a third party here, and uh, we'll see if you're able to capitalize on that. We'll follow it along closely. Thanks, Barry. No, thank you very much, Shay. Appreciate your time. That is Barry Morishita, who is the new leader of the Alberta Party, acclaimed yesterday. We talked about this a bit yesterday. We're going to dig into it a little deeper today once again. Um, The Liberals unveiled their full party platform yesterday, and the cost of implementing it is enormous. It is huge. Uh, But don't be fooled into thinking that really any of the big three parties are doing all that much differently. The NDP and the Conservatives have both announced plans to spend billions and billions of additional dollars if elected. None of them really talking about fiscal responsibility in this election. The national debt forecasted to hit $1.6 trillion. Canada's deficit has grown faster than any other developed nation during this pandemic. Um, And we're not hearing a lot of talk about how to repay it. To be fair, the Conservatives have said um, they will return to balanced budgets in 10 years. That's the only mention of balanced budgets among the big three. Um, but we don't know the full cost of their platform yet or the NDP's platform yet. That's still going through the Parliamentary Budget Office. Uh, we'll get a full breakdown of what it would cost to bring in their plans. But rest assured, it's billions and billions and billions and billions of dollars that we don't have. So let's talk a bit about that with Dr. Livio Di Matteo, who is a professor of economics at Lakehead University. Doctor, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. Good morning. It's kind of interesting, you know, when you take a look at what's going on during this campaign, it would seem that, you know, the three parties that really have a legitimate shot at forming government have completely abandoned all fiscal restraint this time around, and there's not a whole lot to differentiate between any of them, is there? No, they they do seem to be um, 
we're somewhat uh, not really preoccupied with the public finances going forward. Um, <clears throat> essentially, if you look at the uh, current governing uh, party, uh, their own budget uh, basically forecasts deficits uh, well into the future. I mean, spending will decline after the COVID bump over the next couple of years based on the spring 2021 budget. But by around, you know, 2025, you're still looking at a $25, 26000000000 billion deficit. And by the time all the COVID spending has worked its way through, uh, you're looking at a net debt of... Uh, uh, $1.5 trillion. Just um, the new, the two opposition parties are the two main ones that uh, are running against them. Uh, one plans to balance the budget within 10 years. Um, I mean, can that happen? And the answer is both yes and no. I mean, that's, a, I suppose, a typical economist's answer. I mean, theoretically, it, it could happen. I, I mean, uh, once you get to about 2025 and you have that COVID bump out of the spending system, if revenues grow at historic rates of about 4% and spending only grows at about 3%, um, you could expect to balance the budget uh, a few years thereafter. But uh, even the party that's proposed that, uh, they want to increase health transfers at 6% a year. So if something is going up 6% a year, and you need to only increase total spending by 3% a year, something else is going to either have to be reduced or grow at a, at a much lower rate, and that hasn't been fully explained. So it's not that it's not possible, right, yeah. but it's, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of things going on, including the, the slowing economy. And then the other main opposition party, um, they, they do have an awful lot of spending plans, and they are also not concerned. Uh, really about uh, uh, the size of the deficit. And, you know, all three parties, in a sense, are banking on low interest rates. I mean, as long as low interest rates stay where they are, um, you know, um, it, it's not so much the total size of the debt per se, but uh, the size of the debt relative to your ability to support it or, or the, the right, country yeah. output GDP. GDP. And so that's yeah. at about 50% which isn't the highest it's ever been. I mean, it is high, but it was higher in the early 90s, and it was higher at the end of the Second World War. Uh, the difference is, at the end of the Second World War, it was well over 100%, but interest rates were really low, and the economy grew like a rocket for the next 20 years. Uh, the early 1990s, it was only at about 73% compared to over 100%, but interest rates were very high. And so the problem was that out of every federal dollar that was being spent, about 30 cents was going to uh, interest on the debt, which was squeezing out government programs and, you know, things that, you know, people actually need, uh, health, education, etc. Right now, the federal government isn't spending more than seven or eight cents on the dollar it spends uh, to service the debt, which is why, in a sense, uh, all three parties have adopted a sort of complacency uh, going forward, which, you know, as long as interest rates stay low, um, uh, things uh, might work out. But, uh, you know, if interest rates go up uh, because of rising inflation, then as the debt gets refinanced, it's going to raise the costs. And in terms of economic growth, uh, the economy seems to have slowed in the second quarter, and that was uh, before the uh, prospects of a, a fourth wave with the um, 
uh, with the Delta variant. And so we, our export sector has really been uh, hit fairly hard uh, because of all types of supply constraints. Uh, you know, vehicles, for example, took a large hit. So we, a lot of our exports are actually motor vehicles. And uh, because of the problems in getting, you know, parts and chips and, and things like that, um, uh, exports are down. And the other big sector that was uh, fueling GDP growth uh, over the last few years that most people, you know, probably aren't fully aware of is, is the resale of homes. Canada's hot housing market, uh, all those transactions actually fueled a big surge in, in output. And uh, home sales are down. Prices are up a lot. Uh, the number of sales are actually down now, and so that's also had an impact. So, you know, things are slowing. Uh, inflation seems to be picking up, and uh, all these uh, factors together uh, cause some uncertainty for the federal public finances. Well, yeah, clearly. Um, now, of course, all of these parties, I mean, Justin Trudeau went so far as to say, forgive me if I'm not thinking about monetary policy. I'm, I'm concerned with getting Canadians through the pandemic. It's the pandemic. It's the pandemic. Um, should we give them a pass? Are these conditions so extraordinary that it's understandable to say that costs are going to be astronomical and we just have to be okay with that? I mean, is, is that is that all the response we should expect? Well, I, I think when the pandemic hit, given the uncertainty, uh, the first six months or so uh, in terms of spending and programs were probably justified. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it does look like the pandemic is going to be something chronic over the next uh, few years. And we are going to have to learn to live with it, and uh, learning to live with it is also going to include uh, doing a better job of living within our means. I mean, uh, I, I don't think you can give the three parties a, a complete pass on, on, on the, the, the country's finances, uh, because in the end, um, uh, we're all going to be paying for it down the road. Well, that's the thing. So when we take a look at what's going on in the future with a national debt over, you know, one and a half trillion dollars, uh, I think the risks are pretty obvious to most of us. But um, just spell it out a bit for us in terms of where we could end up, because I know a lot of people are saying, you know, these bills will come due and we need to have an understanding of what that's going to mean to Canadian citizens when they do. Well, eventually, um, if the public finances become more problematic, they will either require spending cuts or tax increases or some combination thereof. Uh, I mean, you you can't borrow forever, right, yes. uh, even at low interest rates, so eventually there will have to be some kind of reckoning. And um, the question is, will it become sooner or later? And so, if, you know, if you don't really want to have to go through that type of pain. I mean, the last time we endured that type of fiscal pain was the 1990s. Uh, the federal government cut spending, program spending 10%, and cut transfers to the provinces by one-third in an effort to balance its budget. And so that was a, had a major impact on, for example, health care, mm-hmm. uh, education, because those transfers to the provinces also fund those programs in the provinces, and the, the provinces themselves... Uh, we're also facing debt issues. So, I mean, it's not just even the federal debt. I mean, the federal debt to GDP ratio is about oh, 54, 55%. But, you know, the provinces have substantial debt also. And if you add all the provincial debt, our debt to GDP ratio is well over 90% as a country. Yikes. I mean, we often just focus on the one level. But, you know, Canada is one, you know, big happy federation. And all the finances, in a sense, uh, need to be thought of together because. 
there are like three levels of government, but there really is only one uh, taxpayer exactly. in the end that's going to fund all of this. Um, so you mentioned the debt-to-GDP ratio, and as you said, it's 50% federally, over 90% when you add in the provinces. I mean, mm-hmm. when you take a look at other countries, and one of the things that stood out to me is, is uh, you know, we have spent more than any other developed nation. Uh, we've taken on more debt during this pandemic. Are there other, you know, are there other jurisdictions we can look at and say, you know what, maybe this is a better plan? They're at least being conscious of, of the after-effects of what they're doing? Well, well actually, if you, if you look at the... Uh most of the uh, uh, developed uh, industrial countries, the IMF 35, I mean, they, they've all spent an awful lot. Oh, yeah. Um, uh, I, I don't think you can say anyone has really spent that much less than us. Um, in some sense, overall, we've done a bit better because we started out in a much better position. Mm-hmm. Uh, because Canada had managed to get its finances in order after the 1990s, uh, we went into the pandemic with uh, you know the lowest jet debt-to-GDP ratio federally of uh, the G7 countries. So in a sense, we had more fiscal room to maneuver. Uh, a lot of other countries uh, actually have higher debt-to-GDP ratios than we do, but they also had higher debt-to-GDP ratios going into the pandemic. You know, if you look at countries like Italy or Greece or Japan, uh, even the UK uh, was uh, higher than us going in the US. Uh, Germany was at about uh, where we were. I mean, uh, Germany has, has, has uh, emerged from this with the higher debt-to-GDP ratio, but uh, probably not that much worse than ours. So, I mean, overall, um, you, you know, if you want to compare us to other countries, we haven't done that badly yet. Right. Okay. But we're getting there. Yes. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you, if, you, if you add the provinces, we, we do tend to look a little worse. Yeah, no kidding. Absolutely. Yeah. It changes the picture a lot. Doctor, yeah, thank you so much. It quite a bit. If you add the provinces, we know we're not that far behind the U.S., for example, or, or uh, other countries. Yeah, and, and, and as you say, there's only one taxpayer. It's all coming out of the same pocket, so it makes sense to add them. Uh, Doc, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Shay. Have a great day. You too. That is Dr. Livio DiMatteo, who is a professor of economics at Lakehead University, and... Um, yeah, I mean, we can have that conversation, but it doesn't, it's really interesting to me because um, that seems to be something that comes up always, right, during a federal election campaign. You always hear parties talking about a return to balanced budgets, we're going to tackle the deficit, we're going to, not a whisper about that this time around. Nothing. It hasn't even appeared on the radar, as they say, which is really kind of surprising. And as you hear, there's a, a fallout to that. There is a consequence to that for sure. So um, we'll see. Conversation that I think you are going to find very, very interesting. And just hear it out, okay? Don't take the initial reaction. Listen to what our guest has to say. We're going to be talking about Afghanistan. And the sudden collapse of the Afghan government and the new Taliban regime in power in Afghanistan has really put Western countries in a spot, if if you think about it. It was mind-boggling for many people when Trump brought the globally recognized terrorist group to the U.S. to negotiate. Uh, And during the frenzied evacuation efforts last week, all of the allied countries were relying on negotiations with the Taliban to conduct those operations. It's a complex situation, to be sure. Lots going on. It's not over. There are still Canadians in that country that we are, again, negotiating with the Taliban to try and get out. Uh, the issue caught fire on the campaign trail last week. Um, the foreign affairs minister said the liberal government would take a wait-and-see approach on recognizing a Taliban government. The NDP, the Conservatives, and a lot of Canadians immediately took him to task, saying, we don't negotiate with terrorist groups. What do you mean negotiate with the Taliban? You can't trust the Taliban. 
Later, Justin Trudeau tried to put up that fire saying, Canada has no plans to recognize the Taliban. It's a difficult position politically, there's no doubt. Um, so let's get into it a bit with Colin Robertson now, who put together a piece saying, you know what, Canada should negotiate with the Taliban. Colin is a former Canadian diplomat and current vice president and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. Uh, Colin, thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Good to be with you, Shay. So I think we all recognize this is a truly difficult position and one that's going to take some skill to navigate. Uh, In your piece, though, you do argue that Canada's best course of action is to, in fact, recognize the Taliban as an official government like we do with so many other countries. Yeah, and uh, I say that recognition of of the government is not a a seal of approval. It's simply the means by which we do business. The Taliban is now in control of Afghanistan. Over the past 20 years, we put in billions of dollars. As you probably told your listeners, a number of Canadians have lost their lives. Mm -hmm. There are now deep family links between Canada and Afghanistan because of all the things we've done. There's there's business links. If we're going to represent those links and if we're going to get Canadians who couldn't get out or people who we do want to get out who perhaps uh, served with our forces and we think we, we, we want to give them a chance to come to Canada, they're going to have to leave Afghanistan. In order to leave Afghanistan, they're going to have to have the permission of those in control. I don't like the Taliban. As you said, terrorists, drug dealers, yeah. misogynist killers. But you... you you still you have interests, and you have to do business with them, because if you don't, who's going to do it for them? Otherwise, you're leaving those people who are either Canadian or have got Canadian links high and dry, and then some say, oh, well, we'll work through a third party. Well, my experience is third parties will get to you, but you're bottom of the list. First of all, they deal with their own interests. We have significant interests for the reasons we went in. We were one of the, the keys by which we invoked the Article 5 at NATO, which led to the intervention led by the United States, but included Canada. Of course, we were there for 10 years, and we've been there since with representation and providing aid and assistance with focus on uh, education, on health care, and particularly on on, on women and uh, young girls' rights, uh, sort of human rights stuff. Or do we just wash our hands and say that's billions of dollars down the drain? I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I don't think that the Canadian people will let us do that. I think we think there is a residual tide. It's part of what Canada is sure. about. So my argument is that we recognize the Taliban. I think we strike a deal before because they do want recognition. And I think the first in is going to probably going to get more than the last in. And so I'd say Canada goes in and say, okay, we'll recognize, but here's the list of people we want guarantees are going to get out. And my bet would be the Taliban for the reasons over the last few weeks they gave this to the Americans we did have the, the the terrorist attack at the very end but basically over the last six weeks the Taliban left off their attacks of the Americans because the Americans said we'll be out which suited the Taliban so I think from our perspective again it's trust but verify you say okay we'll give you recognition but we want to see these people out and you help us find some of these people because they may be held right now and uh and, and and therefore you're advancing Canadian interests because that's ultimately what countries have to do is basically support their sure. own people. That's job one, of course. Um, let's take a step back here before we go forward. When we talk about official recognition from the Canadian government of other governments, um, historically, where do we draw that line? Have we sort of bent some of our standards and values in previous instances? Are there other examples where we can look at and say, you know what, in the interest of Canadians, we will 
sort of go against what we typically would do? I mean, when we talk about official recognition, is it is it a little bit flexible? Uh, yeah, very much so. It used to be with like-minded, that is, with other democracies. But we found, soon found that was simply gonna, not going to work for Canadians because we are, of all the countries in the world, you know this, where you're saying, Alberta, look at all the people, the immigrants you have that have come from all over the world. That's part of what makes Canada great. So we have all these connections, and the people who come here want to often bring their family or they've got trade reasons that we want to be a part of. So, so we found that you you recognize the country again it's not a seal of approval we've got differences with all sorts of countries vladimir putin probably mm-hmm. a killer but we have recognition with russia why because we've got trade interests we've got again these closer connections family connections with russia so uh that's why we and, and it, that's why we we recognize other countries because then we can advance canadian interests it's canadians doing it if we don't have recognition then we rely on others. We don't have recognition, for example, with Iran. And there's a lot of Canadians with Iranian roots, so we depend on the on the British and on others to do it. But we're way down their list because yeah. they've got to deal with their own people who've got connections there. Uh, so it's certainly my own personal experience was that the diplomacy is about being there. You can't do this by remote control. You can't do this by telephone. You really have to have somebody there with a couple of people. And, you know, you're not going to send people with families. You'll send your your, your single uh, individuals who who are prepared to knowing that you're, you're, you're living in a place where you're potentially under threat. Yep. And you provide them with protection, but you've got to be there because that person has got to be able to deal with the local authorities ultimately to advance your interests. And in this case, because we still have people who want to get out from uh, Afghanistan. You know, Colin, we've talked about that a fair amount over the past couple of weeks with a, a variety of guests in terms of, you know, Canada needs to recognize that the world landscape has changed, primarily because of the U.S. Um, taking more of an isolationist approach and pulling themselves out of Afghanistan and, and other examples where oh, they don't want to be that world exactly policeman, right? right? Or, you know, we are going to... Look, we've spent the last 70 years under the umbrella yeah. of the United States in terms of defense and security. That's going to change. So we're going to have to, it's like an insurance policy. We've been getting a preferred insurance policy because the Americans saw it in their global interest. But if you heard Biden the other day, he says, we're not going to nation build anymore. Yeah. Other countries are going to have to pick up uh, some of the burden. And they're saying it to Canada. And they're saying it up in our north, for example, because up to now we basically depended on them. They're saying, look, we can't do it all. We're going to have to spend more time in the Indo-Pacific. You, Canada, are going to have to pick up. So, And I think as a sovereign country, we're going to have to do that. It's Again, it's like we've, we've had preferred insurance rate. Well, yeah. now we're going to have to start paying the real premiums. Yeah, we've kind of coasted a little bit. No question about it. One last question. If we don't, if we don't get involved... Um, does that open an up? Op- I mean, we know the Taliban is going to have, like you say, they want recognition, they want international support, those sorts of things. If the Western countries don't establish those ties and work with the Taliban, does that open the door for people like you mentioned Putin or China or these other actors that we have, you know, confrontational relationships with to slide in and use that to their advantage? Oh, uh, very much so. Was, you, you'll see the Chinese and the Russians will be sort of going in now. But, the, you know, they've got their own interests because what they don't want to see is Afghanistan used as a base for terrorism because they've the, the, they've they've got challenges with Islam. This is what the, the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang and the, the, with the Uyghurs and the Russians with Chechen things. So they don't... This is ironically one area where Canada, the United States, uh, Russia, and China all have shared interests. We don't want to see Afghanistan become once again a base 
for groups which yeah. basically want to practice terrorism. And so this is, again, it comes back why we continue to have recognition with China and Russia. Why? Because we do have some shared interests, or big interests, like climate. Okay, if you're going to get climate under control, everybody's got to do their part. can't just be Canada. And so diplomacy is about being there and also dealing with people you don't like and you don't trust, but you do it because it serves your interests. Awesome discussion. Thank you so much, Colin. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Shay. Yeah, you bet. That is Colin Robertson, who um, is a former Canadian diplomat and the current vice president and fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. It's really an interesting discussion, and I think a lot of Western countries or, you know, Western democracies, whatever you want to call them, are sort of wrestling this with this issue right now because he's right. Um, you know, keeping ties to the Taliban, especially while we still have, I don't know how many Canadians, Canadian citizens and permanent residents, and people who supported our troops in that country, still in Afghanistan, desperate to get out, if you don't at least establish some sort of diplomatic relationship with the Taliban, who, like it or not, are now in power in Afghanistan, what does that do to them? It's Is it a, just a simple situation where we're just going to hold our nose? And we're going to sort of set some of our values. You know, we don't negotiate with terrorists, right? How many times have you heard that? Hundreds of times. We don't negotiate with terrorists. That's not what we do. Well, guess what? The Taliban is officially recognized as a terrorist group in this country. So it would be suspending some of our values and our principles and weighing the cost-benefit analysis there. It's an interesting discussion, um, and we'll see where it goes, but you can see the arguments being made on both sides. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.